Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everyone to this LSE public event uh, hosted by the Society Hawks Southeast Asia Center. I am Hyun Bang Shin, Professor of Geography and Urban Studies and Director of Society Hawks Southeast Asia Center or SIAC here at LSE. This event forms part of LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative, a series imagining what the world would look like after the crisis and how we get there. The series will lead up to the LSE Festival 2022, which this year is taking place from Monday 13th to Saturday 18th of June uh, in summer this year. We are delighted to welcome our speakers today, Dr. Rachel Gong, uh, Dr. Sabina Lorenik, Dr. Murray McKenzie, Dr. Do-young Oh, and last but not least, Abby Pangilinan, who is also an LSE alumna, so welcome back to Abby. They are joining us from various parts of the world today, namely the UK, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Cambodia, and the Philippines. A few housekeeping points about this webinar. This event is being recorded, and a video and podcast of the event may be hosted on our website shortly after the event. If for any reason you do not wish to appear in the recording, please email, um, email us um, and we'll remove you from the recording as needed. Please post any questions using the chat box uh, or the Q&A box actually, uh, that can be found at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And there will be an example um, uh, to indicate uh, your name, affiliation, location, and your question. If you'd like to tweet about this event, please be sure to tag us using uh, the LSE uh, uh, Twitter handle uh, and also the Twitter handle of LSE SEAC, which is LSE SEAC, and also use the hashtag uh, LSE post COVID. The event running order will be like this today. As um, uh, the chair, I first introduce the background of the event, and especially given that this event is to mark the launch of the book, uh, which is entitled COVID-19 in Southeast Asia, Insights for a Post-Pandemic World. Um, I introduced as, co- as lead editor the background of the book as well. And before moving on to hearing uh, from our co-editors, Dr. Marie McKenzie and Dr. Doyoung Oh, who will provide their own reflection on the project itself and the book as well. Their uh, interventions will be followed by the reflections um, uh, of contributing authors, um, Rachel, Sabina, and Abby. And each speaker will talk for up to 10 minutes and I'll introduce each speaker in greater detail before they begin to speak. We aim to leave about 30 minutes for the Q&A session and participants, again, uh, as I uh, mentioned earlier, can use the Q&A uh, function of the Zoom uh, to type your questions throughout the event and I direct questions to our speakers. This event is expected to end at 1.30, so about 90 minutes uh, long in total. So without further ado, let me first introduce the book. So this book, COVID-19 in Southeast Asia, Insights for a Post-Pandemic World, was initially uh, conceived in early autumn 2020 as part of the project at the SOC Hook Southeast Asia Center here at LSE. The project was a response to the COVID-19 challenges in Southeast Asia, based on the center's reflection that we need more regional voices as the world has uh, ha- uh, had been grappling hard with the pandemic. 
Despite profound challenges facing the region of Southeast Asia, its voices have been underrepresented in many academic forums, and this was what we found out uh, in summer 2020. In this regard, the research team at SIAC aimed to reflect upon what the crisis means for urbanization, governance, and connectivity in Southeast Asia, and to contemplate uh, post-COVID-19 urban futures by initially focusing on three themes in particular. COVID-19 has obviously represented huge challenges to governments, businesses, civil societies, and people from all walks of life, but its impact has been highly variegated, affecting society in multiple negative ways with uneven uh, geographical and socioeconomic patterns. The crisis revealed the existing contradictions and inequalities in society, compelling us to question what it means to return to normal and what insights can be gleaned from Southeast Asia for thinking about a post-pandemic world. Here, it would be worth noting that the post as in uh, post-pandemic does not necessarily mean a breakaway from the past. It is to internalize pre-pandemic as well as pandemic ways of seeing the world as we project the future. In this regard, uh, the volume itself uh, is a collection of informed views of an ensemble of social scientists who have specialized in area studies, development studies, uh, legal uh, studies, as well as anthropology, archi architecture, economics, and geography, and also planning, sociology, and, uh, and urban studies. The volume represents academic institutions, where especially our contributors, they represent academic institutions, activists, and charitable organizations, policy and research institutes, and areas of professional practices, uh, uh, whose operation and work have, have been engaging with the region of Southeast Asia. These contributions represent a wide-ranging set of views, collectively producing a compilation of reflections on the following three themes in particular, and these are what uh, the book uh, uh, has been divided into. So first, urbanization, digital infrastructures, economies, and the environment. Second, migrants, mobilities and immobilities, and borders. And third, collective action, communities, and mutual action. And overall, this edited volume aims to speak from a situated position in relevant debates to challenge knowledge about the pandemic that has assigned um, selective and, in, uh, and inequitable visibility to issues, people, or places, or which through its inferential or interpretive capacity has worked to set social expectations or assign validity to certain interventions with a bearing on the pandemic's causes and the future it has foretold. The book also aims to advance or renew understandings of social challenges, risks, or inequities that were already in place in uh, the region of Southeast Asia, and which without further or better actions are to be features of our post-pandemic world as well. And this volume also contributes to the ongoing efforts to decenter and decolonize knowledge production and I'm very happy to report that the large majority of nearly 40 contributors in this volume are based in the region. So without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker today, who is Dr. Murray McKenzie. Murray is a postdoctoral research assistant and research officer at the LSE Associate of Southeast Asia Center and a strategic planning consultant. He holds a PhD in geography and urban studies from UCL and an MA in Community and Regional Planning from the University of British Columbia. 
His research focuses on the roles of the arts, culture, and their contest contestation in processes of urban growth and change. So, Murray, the floor is yours. Thank you, Hun. It's nice to see you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'll give Terry a moment to get my slides on the screen. There we are. Um, for this talk, I, I, I took a journey back through the introduction to the book. And I want to use my uh, few minutes to briefly reflect on what we saw as some of the intellectual, critical, political purpose behind uh, producing such a book. Um, and what, 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 what actually becomes clear to me as I, as I revisit this is how at the time of producing the book, so much of our concerns were to do with maintaining its integrity and its purchase on events that we couldn't predict. And I think, in fact, we have to admit two years on that it, it's still actually very difficult, I think, to, to really put a fine point on what all of this means for us. And in fact, when you, when you revisit the, the transinstitutional LSE theme of shaping a post-COVID world, it's not only the post which we can question, as Hyun points out, but also the idea of shaping something which actually appears increasingly shapeless increasingly all pervasive and for those of us here in the UK um, you know, we, we, we now have determined that the pandemic is apparently something to which we cannot respond in any way at all and we now accept that it is the reality that we just live with. Uh, slide please. And so the epigraph that opens the book it, we took from Ulrich Beck's Risk Society and, and it conveys exactly that point about the post that Hyun was making, which is that when faced with events like this, um, and, and the idea of a post-COVID world, which, which does appear to have no meaning and perhaps can't be really actually achieved in any literal posterior sense, there's really only, uh, the, the only option is in fact to, to use that post as a, as a tool to confront the familiar past and present that you're supposedly negating. Slide. And so during the months in, in which this text was written, uh, and, and actually, in fact, that's, that would really actually be the blog, which, which then later became the book, Hyun Doyoung and I and others would often meet to, to share uh, texts uh, that were being published and trying to decide where we would lo locate ourselves among all the different um, meanings that were being given to what was happening. And of course, at that time, the world felt as though it was in a sort of suspended transformation, stuck at home, um, dealing with the, the immediate and, and, and the personal issues that that brought, uh, while at the same time trying to find something decisive, um, something transformative, something hopeful, and, and so on. Um, and in this talk, I'm, I'm, I'm not so much anchoring us in Southeast Asia, because I know that others will do that. But I want to show how the book relates to those intellectual reference points that were appearing around us. And we began compiling um, scholarly texts as they were published almost obsessively. In fact, we still have a archive of roughly 11 or 1200 texts that were published in about 250 journals, um, which we, we, we in fact have still not quite figured out how to make sense of uh, simply just because of the sheer incoherence of it all. In any case, um, I begin with this, this quote from Arundhati Roy, the Indian activist and writer, who was 
who wrote this very influential piece in the Financial Times, which suggested that the pandemic would serve as a portal or a, or a gateway between one world and the next. And it was our wish for this volume to evince some of this hopefulness and incisiveness of its treatment of the circumstances that the pandemic was bringing differently or more clearly into view. Slide. And at the same time, um, we were also aware of the challenge brought by some of our urbanist colleagues, which was that these sort of monumental claims would, would actually in fact risk doing a disservice to the experience of urban majorities, particularly in the global south, where emerging infectious diseases would be just one risk among those that would constitute an enduring crisis. For many urban residents, of course, there's been no lockdown, no social distancing, no substantial change to provisions for sanitation or public health. These effects often fall to critical social scientists to make known. Slide, please. And so this is how we anchored ourselves. Um, we, we, we saw the evidence of disciplinary disjuncture and incoherence, but also the possibility for deeper analysis and reflection through which uh, concepts and theories would begin to coalesce. And we, we wish to bring this together into the book by, by gathering up uh, the work of our colleagues. Slide, please. So if I take those first 11 or 1200 uh, titles that we collected, and I did this um, recently, which is to put them into a, the titles into a word frequency uh, calculator. The two most common phrases in all of the titles are the impact of COVID-19 and various variations on in the time of COVID-19. I think that reflects something quite important about the way in which we responded to this as social scientists. There are essentially two fundamental perspectives here, neither of which would claim us to suddenly become experts in infectious diseases, but instead to see this as, as a sort of portal as Arundhati Roy sets out. On one hand, you have the situated position in relevant debates that allows you to challenge knowledge about the pandemic, which as Hyun says, selectively assigns visibility. It sets social expectations, assigns validity to certain interventions, which we, which we discussed quite a bit early on in the pandemic. Uh, and indeed the way that knowledge has a bearing on the pandemic's course and that future of the post-pandemic world. And on the other hand, so many of us chose to write about our own areas of interest in the times of the pandemic, to take the events and the consequences to advance or renew understandings of social challenges, risks, and inequities. Those which without further or better action would become features of the post-pandemic world as well. For perhaps all of us with the pandemic, including the suspension of our most primary research activities, there's, it was a time for a critical reevaluation of our research areas and our subfields. By grounding this volume in Southeast Asia, we, we wanted to secure a place, of course, for a region that was among the first outside of East Asia to be confronted with COVID-19. In that archive of scholarly research we collected, we found that only 3.4% of articles or texts thoroughly described or analyzed experiences of the pandemic in Southeast Asia. Now, of course, that's uh, entirely English language scholarship, but nevertheless, given academic practices around the world, it's, it's quite, um, quite a large distance between 3.4% in a region that represents two fifths of the world's population. Slide, please. 
And so to take Beck's risk society as a, as a initial basis for summing up what it is that holds this outburst of scholarship together uh, and what an, an original critical undertaking might collectively advance, you have effe effectively two major perspectives that we can take in, in, in what we can do as scholars, as social scientists to challenge what's going on. The first is to, is to challenge the social existence risks acquire through their social construction. This has always been an essential premise of ge geographers' critical inventions into global health and the differentiated manner in which uh, visibility is created and interventions are made possible. And we've seen consistently throughout the pandemic the vital purpose of this kind of scholarship and challenging rationalities and causal interpretations, challenging social expectations and value judgments, the ways in which the pandemic is understood and addressed. And secondly, we wanted to feature research that would challenge the way that risks are unevenly distributed, the way that they amplified existing inequalities and complicated them, evident at all scales from the interpersonal to the global. Many of the risks and consequences of overproduction, as we've seen, are displaced uh, by a combination of design and circumstance onto the same disadvantaged groups for whom scarcity is a real predicament. Um, you can think, for instance, of uh, the informal settlements of Jakarta that are most vulnerable to pollution, flooding, uh, and land subsidence. And these, too, are the groups that are most likely to lack the information and resources needed to recognize and avoid risks to which they are exposed. And it was Harvey, David Harvey, early in the pandemic, who challenged that familiar refrain that we were all in this together, which he said is only a, a cloak over outcomes differentiated by class, gender, race, ethnicity, and so on. And sorry, I think there's another slide. Is there another slide? Ah, good. And so finally, the question would be uh, to return to Arundhati Roy's challenge. If, if the pandemic is a portal, what is it a portal to? And there is on one hand the possibility of, a, of an answer that seizes the opportunity to construct a community of global risk, potentially in terms of that imminent collectivity, a great awakening to intersectional equivalences. You, you see this in, in a lot of the social sciences where pen, the, the pandemic could be a catalyst for a global development paradigm, perhaps a sustainability transition, uh, an ethics of care and so on. And the second part of the answer uh, or the opposite answer is to step back from commonality of positive social change. Commonality could be, in fact, precisely the way in which we defer responsibility. And instead to, to suggest that it's actually the, the, the anxiety of negative social change that is what, that, that actually what animates critical thinking. Negative in the sense that it's not about what we need or what we want, but simply that the demand to be spared from exposure to danger. Uh, to the dangers we've collectively produced. In other words, to say that the portal we want most of all is simply a portal to something other than this. I hope that helps uh, sketch out some of our initial thinking and I'll, I'll stop there, um, but look forward to the discussion and very pleased to share this book with you all and uh, to have finally reached a point where we can uh, return to some of these ideas and, uh, and think through them again. Thanks. Thank you so much. I it's certainly a uh, very you know, uh, uh, wonderful introduction in, uh, to the volume, and also to thinking about what it means to think of in you know, a pandemic as a portal to where, especially when it comes to thinking about the tension you know, between the positive and negative social changes, which continuously uh, come to dominate the mindset 
and the actions um, of various uh, countries across the world. Um, next speaker will be uh, Dr. Doyoung Oh, uh, who is a research assistant professor at the School of Graduate Studies at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. Doyoung was previously a research officer based at uh, uh, jointly at SIAC and the Middle East Center here at the LSE, uh, where he completed uh, his PhD in regional urban planning studies and his research interest focus on comparative urbanism and post-colonialism in East Asia. So Doyoung, over to you. Okay, um, hello from Hong Kong. Uh, this is Doyang. Um, it's my great pleasure uh, to be here to share my experience as a co-editor uh, of this volume and introduce our edited volume before we are inviting our contributors to introduce their chapter today. After uh, the publication of this volume, one of my non-academic friends uh, checked this book and asked me questions. So what is the future of Southeast Asia? Like, uh, what are the key points and so on? After receiving these questions, I, I realized that others might think the same way, expecting more concrete answers about the post-pandemic world. However, uh, we are definitely not a group of fortune tellers, so we cannot offer an immediate answer to that. Still, I, I believe that this uh, edited volume can be good guidance, telling you various critical issues in the region and the directions uh, society is currently heading toward. So if you finish reading this volume, you will probably agree with me that you have a deeper understanding of the region's uh, current affairs. So this volume uh, has 24 chapters and introduction and postscript um, we try to include all the countries in the region, but in the end, uh, we don't have chapters on Laos and Brunei, as well as uh, East Timor. But still, we were able to invite a diverse range of contributors, including senior to early career academics, researchers, and activists across the across various disciplines. Um, I will move to the next slide to briefly introduce about three parts of the book. Um, so regarding the first part, urbanization, digital infrastructure, economies, and the environment, this part shows that COVID-19 is a catalytic crisis that has accelerated processes of social change. So COVID-19 is a momentum to rebuild the existing social issues more clearly. And there are both positive and negative directions we found. So some of our chapters shows, show that COVID-19 is deepening global, national, and regional inequalities. Digital technologies often work in a positive way to support vulnerable groups of society, but the technologies are, are also mobilized by the state as a means of surveillance. Um, I guess we will learn more about these issues later by uh, speakers with us today. For the second part for migrants, immobilities and borders, uh, we learned that COVID-19 shows how uh, the region is closely connected um, to each other and with, with uh, other parts of the world. 
people from the region have played a critical role in supporting others. There are nurses, domestic workers, seamen, and so on. Uh, despite their contributions to many different parts of the world, our chapter shows that existing structural inequality has had a more severe impact on them. Again, our speaker here, Abby, will tell us more which stories uh, later. Lastly, uh, collective action, communities, and mutual aid part. Uh, here, there is a bit of silver lining, even though people in the region are suffering not only uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also other events like uh, the Myanmar coup in 2021. Uh, we found that despite the presence of authoritarian state in Southeast Asia, communities are considerably important to respond to the crisis. In this regard, we introduced various kinds of efforts done by civil society as a response to ongoing pandemic. I think these findings also resonate with our postscript calling ethics of care against this pandemic and socioeconomic and political challenges we are facing. We expect that mutual aid and care we learn from these chapters continue further and keep making real change of society. So uh, when we start this project and circulated a call for contributions for the LSE Southeast Asia blog in, in July 2020, I personally never expected that we would end up publishing this volume. But we were uh, overwhelmed by active responses by people having different backgrounds and different experiences. As a result, uh, almost 50 blog posts are now available on LSE Southeast Asia blog regarding the COVID-19 issues. So we were definitely motivated by these active responses and felt responsible to spread their voices further using our tools. So we decided to publish them as an edited volume in the end. We thought LSE Press could be our best choice because LSE Press can understand our intention and provide full support for the volume. And this book is also freely available for everyone as well. So my reflection is that uh, the privileged institution like LSE need to listen to more voices from different parts of the world, including uh, Southeast Asia, and to give more platforms to them to talk about themselves. So when you actually check many books and edited volumes uh, regarding COVID-19, there are plenty of books you can find. And if you see where they are produced, you will probably agree with me like scholars in the region are facing various challenges, but opportunities for them to speak and for us to learn from them have been very limited uh, in this regard. I'm very proud of this volume as an outcome of such an effort. Uh, we have closely worked with people in the region and reflected their voices, as Hyun mentioned earlier. Uh, this, so I believe, sets it apart from other books about COVID-19. Um, yeah, uh, that's all for my part now. Uh, so but before handing over, I must thank LSE Press, uh, including Professor Patrick Dunleavy and Lucy Lamb for their sincere support to the volume as well as all the contributors and other colleagues at Sociox Southeast Asia Center who provided support for the entire process. Uh, also last but least, thanks to LSE Comps team to facilitate this event. I will now hand the screen over to Jan. Uh, thank you very much for listening.
Well, thank you so much. Uh, Toyang, you stole my lines uh, when it comes to thanking people. But uh, I think it's, thank it's always... <laughs> yes, indeed, yes. Uh, um, next, we'll be hearing from our uh, contributors, uh, starting with Dr. Rachel Gong, uh, who is a senior researcher at Kazana Research Institute in Malaysia. Um, Kazana Research Institute is a policy, policy tank based in Kuala Lumpur. And Rachel's current research covers digital policy issues such as digital inclusion, the digital economy, and digital governance. Her earlier research has been published in Sociological Perspectives, the Journal of Consumer Culture, and the Journal of Technology and Human Services. And Rachel graduated uh, summa cum laude from Princeton University and received her PhD in sociology from Stanford University in the US. And her contribution to the volume was the co-author piece that examined Digital Transformation, Education, and Adult Learning in Malaysia. So over to you, Rachel. Thanks, Yan. Let me get my slides up as well. Okay. So let me start by um, also thanking uh, LSE and the Saucy Hawk uh, Southeast Asia Center for this opportunity to be part of the book and the book launch and to be sharing the screen with this group of scholars here today. Very much looking forward to hearing um, everyone's presentations. Let me take a moment to acknowledge my co-authors, um, Ashraf Shaharuddin and Siti Aisha Tumin, as well as the other contributors to this book and the editors, Kian Murray and Doyoung, who brought us all together. Uh, I know publishing a book is very much a collective effort. I'm very thankful and grateful to be a part of this one. So as uh, Hyun mentioned, I am a sociologist currently based at the Kazana Research Institute in Kuala Lumpur, where I lead the team that works on digital policy research. Uh, we published our book titled Network Nation last June. And so the launch of this book, COVID-19 in Southeast Asia, um, Insights for a Post-Pandemic World, is an opportune moment for us to locate some of the work that we've done on Malaysia in the wider context of Southeast Asia. Much like the coronavirus, uh, digital transformation affects all parts of society, but it doesn't affect all of society equally. In our chapter, um, the Digital Transformation Education and Adult Learning in Malaysia, my co-authors and I discussed digital learning inequalities, both in schools and in the labor force. And these are just one example of the challenges facing Malaysia and really most countries um, in struggling to adapt to life in the pandemic. Malaysia relied heavily on digital technologies when the pandemic first hit its shores and office workers were uh, forced to work from home. Uh, schools and universities had to go online and have classes online. Um, and one thing we did see was that e-commerce and food deliveries really started to grow and boom. In fact, last February, uh, Malaysia's government sort of reacted and responded by releasing a digital economy blueprint with aspirations to make the nation a leader in Southeast Asia's digital economy. And I think uh, one's reach should exceed one's grasp, but this ambitious growth cannot come about without inclusive development and good governance. Lift experience on the ground reveals that even as some traditional digital divides are narrowing, such as household internet access, new digital challenges are emerging, such as digital competency gaps. Inequitable opportunities are reproduced even exacerbated as an over-dependence on digital systems privileges the socioeconomic elite and makes socioeconomic inequalities worse. So without having uh, proper checks and balances, 
technologies that were intended to level the playing field can make them more can make it more uneven. Social technical solutions are needed that will prioritize the public interest and social well-being, as technology that is developed and implemented by elites, no matter how innovative, will not adequately address existing and new structural inequalities without more engagement with affected communities. So we need more public interest technologies who study and apply their technological expertise to advance the public interest, generate public benefits, and endorse the public good. Let me provide some context on Malaysia for uh, those of you who might not be uh, familiar with the country. With a population of about half the size of the United Kingdom and a median monthly household income of about two-fifths of that of the UK, uh, Malaysia is doing relatively well in terms of um, household internet access and COVID vaccination rates. One of the challenges that Malaysia is facing in its pandemic recovery efforts is in addressing digital skills gaps in its labor force and improving digital literacy among its population. And that includes ensuring that school children are receiving the education that they need in order to thrive in a digitally transformed society, including an economy that is increasingly data-driven. In our chapter, we discuss how digitalization has been necessary during the pandemic, but is likely not sufficient in its wake. We highlight how education was, dis was disrupted in Malaysia in 2020. Schools closed at least 17 out of 43 weeks, and not all students were able to transition to studying online. Approximately 77% of students could not easily pivot to online classes due to limited digital resources at home, uh, whether this be in terms of lack of devices or not having enough data on their internet plans. And this disadvantage, as you might expect, was disproportionately borne by students from low-income households. Estimates also suggested that at most 28% of Malaysian jobs could be done remotely compared to about 37% of US jobs. As many workers were laid off or underemployed and estimates suggested that under, uh, unemployment peaked at about 5% in 2020 due to the pandemic constraints. The government made efforts to offer reskilling and upskilling trainings for job seekers, especially with respect to digital skills. At the time of writing, we didn't have statistics on the take up rate for these trainings, but if history is any indicator, the training participation rate in Malaysia is unlikely to exceed 25%. Since then, we've learned that as of October 2021, schools in Malaysia closed for about 42 weeks since the start of the pandemic, the third highest in Southeast Asia behind Cambodia and Myanmar. A World Bank simulation study estimated that this could lead to up to 1.3 additional years of learning loss for Malaysian students. And although the government did its best to distribute 150,000 students to needy, to 150,000 laptops to needy students, especially those in rural and remote areas, students still face challenges with online learning. Meanwhile, digital job vacancies increased 3.5 times between 2020 and 2021. But again, as of October 2021, the Malaysian Department of Statistics estimated that youth unemployment, that is measuring the unemployment um, for job seekers aged 15 to 24, was at 13.9%, over three times the national unemployment rate of 4.3%. Skills mismatch between job seekers and employers remains an issue, and dissatisfaction among the workplace is an emerging concern. 
Facing pressures to digitalize and automate, employers who are in Malaysia mostly small and medium-sized enterprises are likely to face more challenges in finding suitable workers and retaining them in their pandemic recovery efforts. So where does this leave us? In my opinion, we have crossed a digital Rubicon and there is no going back. Um, life in a post-pandemic world will be digital. We will need to go beyond digitization, which makes analog things digital, like scanning a document for archiving. And we cannot allow digital literacy to remain limited to just highly trained technical people or um, in specific sectors of the economy. Digital transformation in a post-pandemic world requires considering how the use of digital technologies also transforms society from communications and education to finding a job and buying a house. We will have to adapt our attitudes on digital technologies and take social technical, not just technical approaches to coming up with digital policy. I'd like to highlight four principles that I believe can inform good policy making. First, inclusive design. We're going to need technological tools that can be meaningfully used by all groups of people, uh, including and especially the vulnerable and disenfranchised. For example, having translations of websites, public service websites in particular, into multiple languages uh, can be very helpful, um, especially translation into languages spoken by large migrant communities. On a separate but unrelated note, um, Jarod Ramadan Khalidi and Tanteng Teng's chapter in this book on the economic case against the marginalization of migrant workers in Malaysia highlights the plight of these migrant workers and asks how digital transformation in the form of automation will affect this community. It's worth asking how design can be more inclusive, not just in terms of designing technological tools, but of technological systems and processes more broadly. The second principle is prioritizing the user perspective. Digital transformation should benefit the masses, not just the elites, and more attention should be paid to the user experience. For example, by evaluating internet performance by what speeds users are receiving, um, especially again in, in, rural, in remote and rural areas, instead of relying on performance metrics reported by service providers. Or assess, assessing digital pedagogy by student engagement or learning outcomes, rather than relying on educational tech platforms, functions and features. A third principle of good policymaking is good governance, which ranges from making systems interoperable and secure to ensuring that data are properly managed. As already highlighted, uh, Munyati Yatid and Falina Said's chapter on data privacy, security, and the future of data governance in Malaysia offers some suggestions for policymakers on this subject. And we can see how cross-border regulations are going to become increasingly important in a globally networked world. Fourth, prioritizing the public interest. Um, pardon my coming across as repetitive on this point, but time and time again, we see policies that are being developed that favor private interests, even when it comes to developing public infrastructure. And while it's true that many of the digital apps that we are familiar with are private sector innovations, the backbone of the technology on which they run was largely developed using public funds. And so it is public interest and social well-being that we need to prioritize now as we emerge into a post-pandemic world. And that brings me to the end of my presentation. Um, thank you for your attention. I do look forward to um, engaging with you on some of the questions that you may have. Um, please feel free to reach out and connect. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think those four principles will be very useful uh, uh, starting point for thinking about digital inclusion and uh, not only for Malaysia, for 
for many other countries across the world. Um, hopefully we can come back to some of these points uh, during the Q&A session. Um, next will be uh, Dr. Sabina Lorenik, uh, who is joining us from Cambodia. Sabina is a Nottingham Research Fellow in the School of Geography at the University of Nottingham. She is the co-author of Going Nowhere Fast, Mobile Inequality in the Age of Transurcality. And her contribution in this volume was a co-author piece that examined global precarity chains and the economic impact on Cambodia's garment workers. Over to you, Sabina. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Great. Yeah, so thank you um, very much, Sean, for um, inviting us to be part of this um, exciting launch uh, of the book. Uh, and thanks to everyone also who's uh, joined us today. Uh, as, as Sean said, I'm Sabina Labrinuk. Um, I'm a Nottingham Research Fellow in the School of Geography at the University of Nottingham. Um, but today I'm here to represent a bigger research collaboration um, that we call the Refashion Study. Um, Refashion is funded by the GCRF in the UK, and it's a collaboration between UK universities led by Professor Catherine Brickell at Royal Holloway and our partners at the Cambodia Development Resource Institute in Phnom Penh. Um, so in particular here, I'd like to highlight the contributions of two members of CDRI, um, TV Chom and Vite So, um, who've co-authored this chapter with us. Um, just for clarity, however, uh, any opinions that I share today are my own uh, and they don't necessarily reflect the views of those other team members. Um, for two years now, our refashion team has been tracking the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on a cohort of 200 female garment workers in Cambodia. Um, we've been tracking them from January 2020 right through to December 2021. Um, the study combined a quantitative survey on income and well-being with our 200 participants with a qualitative round of interviews to um, explore emergent themes in a bit more depth. Each of these components was repeated with the same cohort of workers at strategic intervals. So in this way, the research was designed to enable us to capture an in-depth and long-term understanding of women's lives through the pandemic. The LSE Press book chapter was the very first output that we were able to contribute from our study, and it reflects on the findings from the first round of our research, covering the period of time between January 2020 and January 2021. Um, and in the chapter, we share a perspective on the first year of the pandemic through the eyes of two of the participants in our study, who we call Lida and Chantu, although these are not actually the participants' real names. Um, before the COVID-19 pandemic, there were up to a million garment workers in Cambodia working in factories just like this one in the image here. 80% of those workers, like Lidar and Chantu, were women. Um, and although they don't always do this work out of choice, people like Lidar and Chantu, um, rather with uh, limited levels of education and skills um, in an economy that's often struggled to diversify beyond garments, there simply aren't a lot of alternatives open to them. Um, so as leader confided to us here um, at the beginning of our project, uh, I always think about finding another job, but I don't know if I've got any ability or capacity. I can only dream, but I can't find a way to follow my dream. 
Like elsewhere in Southeast Asia, Cambodia's um, emergency health response in that first year of the pandemic was widely heralded as a success, um, with very few cases and zero deaths recorded. But Cambodia's achievements at mitigating the direct health impacts of COVID-19 couldn't protect its population from the economic fallout of the pandemic. Instead, uh, the impacts of manufacturing shutdowns and lockdowns all around the world took a huge hit on the garment sector's output. Tens of thousands of women in Cambodia were put out of work on a permanent basis, and hundreds of thousands more were suspended for temporary intervals or found their working hours were reduced. Through that first year, this happened to Lida often, as she explained. Um, the factory announced that the buyer has cancelled product orders, therefore they don't have much work for all the workers. They decided to change the shift patterns, which means that I can only work between 10 and 14 days for the whole of January. This, at this point is January 2021. So for the workers in our study, the effect of these job losses and unstable hours had a really huge impact on their income. Typical wages of $240 a month in January had dropped quite dramatically to $147 by May. And their average pay over the period was $180 a month, which is a reduction of 25% on their expected earnings. Crucially, even at their peak in January 2020, the typical wages of the garment industry at worker in Cambodia are already significantly below what we would describe as living wage levels. Um, that is the amount that a worker needs to meet the basic needs of herself and her family for costs like housing and food. So although she'd been working in the garment industry since 2008, a typical worker like Lidar had not managed to make regular savings from her salary to help her through this downturn. As we found out, actually, it was quite the opposite. Instead, uh, Lidar had taken microcredit loans totaling more than 8,000 US dollars. That's more than three times her annual salary as a garment worker. We found that in the absence of comprehensive social protection, many workers have been engaging in forms of debt finance social reproduction for many years. During that first year of the pandemic, when their incomes dropped, however, they no longer had the salaries to meet the cost of their monthly loan repayments. Lida's $8,000 debt, for example, uh, left her needing to make repayments of $193 US every month. So as she explained again, during the suspension, therefore, they cried every night. I asked the loan officer, how can I repay the loan? But he just said, Auntie, uh, there's nothing I can do to help you with that. So Lida and many of our other participants were forced to make cutbacks any way that they could, making further sacrifices within the already fine margins of everyday household expenditure. The leading adaptations reported in our survey were to spend less money on daily living costs and food in particular. Um, the average household food budget in the study had dropped from something like $4.40 per day in January 2020 to $2.70 by the end of the year. That's a very significant fall of about 39%. A situation of chronic food insecurity therefore developed. By October 2020, 55% of our participants could recall a time when their households ate less than they thought they should because of a lack of money or other resources. 20% of participants could recall a time when they were hungry, but they didn't eat at all. Um, as Lida says here, um, I'd go to work every day, I just eat rice and I can't desire any other snacks because I can't afford it. Um, and she described this to our team through tears. I can only tell you one word to describe my situation and that's hardship. I reduced my spending on food. Some days we have only eggs for meals. 
So in our chapter, we draw from these experiences of Lidar and Chantu and our other participants throughout the first year of the pandemic to think critically about the role of global supply chains in promoting economic development. Much of the literature describes supply chains as a win-win, bringing mutual benefits for business, for labour and for national economies. But building on the alternative perspective shared by our workers in the study, we instead advance the idea of global precarity chains as a better way to capture their unstable and unequal dynamics as uh, volatile and exploitative networks of business and trade that provide flexible and insecure forms of work that produce a reliance on unsustainable debt and a very uncertain existence for labour as leaders' testimony here illustrates. I'm so depressed about this leader shared with us back in January 2021. It seemed to have mental health problems. I keep thinking all night about these worries. Now, although the volatile and exploitative dynamics that we highlight here were revealed by the pandemic, they weren't caused by it. COVID-19 has not made COVID value chains newly precarious. Rather, it's exposed and exacerbated long-standing vulnerabilities that women had already been navigating on a daily basis before the pandemic's arrival, and which they now carry forward into the post-pandemic era. Through subsequent rounds of research, we've engaged with our participants uh, again and again as the economic crisis in Cambodia turned first into a health emergency, and then as the vaccine rollout has precipitated something of a return to a new normal. At times, Lidar was rendered unable to work through lockdowns and quarantines. At other times, she was compelled to work through outbreaks of the virus, as a result of which she was later infected with COVID-19. Throughout this whole period, she's confronted the growing informalization of work in the sector and a deepening reliance on credit to finance her family's everyday subsistence. We therefore believe that global precarity chains remain an increasingly salient concept for understanding the contemporary transnational organization of work and production. And we share leaders' hope in the final quote here, that the experiences of these women can serve as an urgent call to address the vulnerabilities of work in global supply chains through robust social protection programming in the post-pandemic future. Um, thank you all again for the opportunity to share this work again. And please do uh, follow updates if you're interested at our project website or Twitter feed. Thanks. Thank you so much, Sabina. I think the proposal to introduce this concept of global precarity chain is definitely going to be adding a lot of you know, weight you know, to critical discourses and debates on the fate of these uh, workers, like garment workers in Cambodia, and something that will be probably. Uh, providing us with some more critical insight in a, uh, um, uh, in a way that may be different from what we may gain from such terms like in a global production network or global value chains. So that's uh, from that was from Sabina, and we move on to our last but not least, our speaker from the Philippines, Abby. Over to you. Oh, sorry. Uh, let me also introduce Abby. Um, uh, Abby uh, Pangilina is a development worker and urban planner who specializes in implementing social protection programs in both urban and rural contexts. She has a master's degree in urban and regional planning from the University of the Philippines and a master's uh, de uh, degree in urbanization and develop development from the London School of Economics. And her co-author chapter examines the repatriated overseas Filipino workers. So over to you, Abby.
Thank you, Yun. Um, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's really an honor on behalf of my co-authors, um, Ika Fernandez, Tanya Quijano, and Justin Muyot, to be invited uh, to submit a chapter to the book. Um, congratulations. So um, I'm sorry I don't have a presentation. Uh, I, I want to make this quick. Uh, it's 10-minute talk. So uh, I just want to give a background on the context on why uh, my co-authors and I put together that article. So in the middle of um, 2020, we were actually reflecting on writing a different article uh, that would focus on human rights and how it's being constantly violated in the Philippines uh, by the government in its pandemic response. But um, one of the issues that surfaced uh, and was clear to us as development workers was the plight of overseas Filipino workers. And you we felt that in the middle of all the precarity that we are facing, it is important to surface the issue. And uh, the invitation to submit an, a blog post uh, was timely uh, for us to surface it and also to call for uh, action on the part of government to address the growing concern of migrant workers. So at the time, there were around 600,000 overseas Filipinos, uh, overseas Filipino workers or OFWs affected. And uh, sadly, uh, this number increased in the span of eight months from when we wrote this article, uh, the number is now close to a million uh, repatriated workers to date. Uh, so the problem is actually still very much present that the government has yet to implement a comprehensive program to assist displaced over overseas Filipino workers and their families. So the discussion is actually more centered on um, who are overseas Filipino workers and uh, what is happening uh, to the close to 1 million uh, OFWs who have been displaced in the two years of the pandemic. So overseas Filipino workers are actually uh, a combination of both um, professional and those involved in um, manual or elementary positions doing manual labor, such as um, construction and domestic work. So approximately 2.2 million OFWs are scattered worldwide. Uh, and they make the Philippines... Um, the fourth largest destination of remittances uh, as of the 2020 World Bank data. And this um, remittances account for close to 8 or 9% of the country's GDP, even during the pandemic. So um, just to highlight and underscore the focus of our chapter, it really is on um, the, the situation of migrant families, the, the families of overseas Filipino workers, that they are not affluent. So they get by and are still highly dependent on monthly wages and remittances sent by, by the family member abroad. So um, with the pandemic and its unexpected uh, scale, um, a lot of the over overseas Filipino families uh, suffer the blow economically. So what happens is that they are already confronted with multiple vulnerabilities pre-pandemic, uh, which is the reason why they had to send a family member abroad to, to buffer that. Um, when the pandemic struck, a lot of them lost a significant portion of household income because of the scenario that um, their primary breadwinner uh, lost their jobs abroad and are now being sent home. So the, the plight is actually not just of the OFW, of the overseas Philippine worker that is being repatriated, but of their families uh, here in the Philippines. So we, we tried to surface that this isn't, while this isn't the first time that the Philippines is actually tasked to handle a massive repatriation, uh, this is actually probably the only time that it is confronted with 
repatriation at this scale. And it is in, in a pandemic context that is all new to us. So the typical menu uh, of services and programs and processes uh, might not work. So adjustments and resources are needed uh, for food, transportation, assistance, and um, hotel quarantine, plus ensuring that the repatriated overseas Filipino worker gets home to their provinces safely. But um, as we all know, you've probably heard uh, in, in global news that the Philippines is actually ranking very low uh, in terms of overall pandemic response. So the overseas Filipinos are actually one of the sectors greatly affected. Who, they suffered the burnt of na nationwide lockdowns, uh, rendered, which rendered the country immobile for months. So we had the stringent, the strictest lockdown probably in, in Southeast Asia. And we uh, had to deal with confusing policies, um, varying border controls, and the lack of coordination between um, the national and the local government. Uh, the local governments are, in this case, the receiving communities of the repatriated uh, overseas Filipino workers. So in the process, um, a lot of the returning overseas Filipino workers uh, are in limbo. They were stuck mostly without enough money. So a lot of them ended up in jam-packed stadiums, uh, waiting, running out of cash and waiting for their flights home. And for those who are even in more desolate situations, they had to live on the streets across the airport uh, while waiting for their flight zone. So it, it's really a, a, an issue uh, from the perspective of my co-authors and I because we, we've been doing development work for the past decade or so. So, so the, bigger, the bigger problem is actually more structural as discussed in, in, by the other, uh, other panelists that uh, for a Southeast Asian country like the Philippines, um, the, the, the long-term issues uh, that we needed to address were actually magnified by the pandemic, uh, including uh, the issue of reintegration for overseas Filipino workers and the social aspect of having to face the stigma of losing a, their jobs, being sent home, the lack of dignity of how they, they were handled the moment they land into the Philippines. And of course, the, the, the added burden that they might be uh, vectors of the disease. So all of this um, needed to be addressed immediately as um, waves of repatriated overseas Filipinos continue to come. Uh, so what we, what we reflected on is that um, as the Philippine government continued to implement a highly militarized approach to handling a health crisis, uh, it, it cannot be the local governments and the private sector carrying much of the burden. It's not sustainable. It will definitely not address the core of the problem. So it has to be a, a whole of nation, a whole of government approach uh, that is necessary to be able to support uh, what we refer, what we call um, bagong bayani uh, or, or in English, modern day, mo modern day heroes. So um, in the absence of all of this, um, we think it is important to um, develop and acknowledge that um, the economic and social cost of the pandemic is, is still here. It, we're not yet in the post-pandemic world. So policies cannot be made in a vacuum. We have to acknowledge that adjustments had to be made and um, publicly funded safety nets had to be put in place because the, the burden of survival cannot be put upon neighbors, relatives, fellow Filipinos uh, through individual efforts. So that's one. 
And second, um, good governance practices is still very much essential. Um, I don't know if uh, the the people are are familiar with how um, the Philippines has been confronted with a lot of corruption um, issues uh, the past year, even within the pandemic. Uh, so the government has to step up and look look at the pandemic as a chance to reimagine the way uh, we treat and handle uh, our overseas Filipino workers. And to start thinking about protecting their rights to better bilateral agreements and ensuring that the current um, generation of migrants can receive adequate assistance that are due them. So my final point, our final point when we reflected on this is that um, treating people with dignity is still necessary even even when you are the, the government is actually literally falling apart in terms of handling the, the health crisis. Um, with the pandemic approaching its second year and our government still acting as if it's over and that people can fend for themselves and keep each other alive. Um, and it's likely going to stretch for at least another year. Um, we, we're, we're having our elections in May, so it depends on how it would pan out. Um, but still, it shouldn't discount the, the reality and the fact that um, we have to give attention to long overdue reforms uh, and that the new normal for overseas Filipinos is highly dependent on how well its government will be will take care of them as they reintegrate to society or prepare for redeployment uh, given other opportunities abroad. But at the end of it all, um, we refer to them as modern-day heroes, and it's just about time to give them that kind of treatment uh, that they deserve. So uh, that's all I can say. And um, please um, do ask questions if you have any. Thank you. But thank you so much. Uh, and thanks uh, to all our speakers uh, for making your intervention concise and right on time. Um, we'll now be going uh, through the questions um, using the, uh, starting with those ones which are posted in our Q&A uh, uh, section. Um, and if you do have any questions as you listen to further discussions, please do use the Q&A to post your questions again. Um, I think we'll start with some of, a couple of questions which are, uh, are uh, directed to uh, Rachel's intervention more specifically uh, regarding digital um, issues. So here, um, uh, and after Rachel's response, I may also direct some of the questions to Sabina and Abby, especially um, in relation to what has been asked uh, by uh, 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 our members of audience, uh, is, uh, particularly Isato and, and Raksmi, uh, when it comes to thinking about the kind of in a, a global or regional uh, coordination and cooperation. Uh, to address the uh, economic impact of the pandemic and also uh, in thinking about um, what measures are to be implemented in a, uh, to combat in a, uh, the COVID-19 and prepare the region for post-COVID world. And I guess in this case, for Sabina and Abby, it might be useful actually for you to reflect upon global and regional uh, initiatives that, might, that you may envisage necessary for the protection of government workers and overseas Filipino workers. And I guess perhaps, um, Rachel, I might come back to you afterwards in a, regarding you know, that global regional level of co cooperation regarding digital inclusion and so on. But for now, uh, we have a question from uh, Professor Patrick Dunleavy, who's editor-in-chief of LSE Press. 
was asking uh, Rachel this question, um, whether the Malaysian government managed to, managed to continue working mostly unchanged in the pandemic, for example, by staff working from home. And does the government uh, seek to leverage digital change within its own processes, or is it only concerned with digital education from the viewpoint of private firms? We have a related question also directed to Rachel specifically. Uh, and this one comes from Master's uh, Will Howard, who is master's st student in regional region urban planning studies at LSE, who is asking this question. Um, regarding this digital inequality, um, which has been an issue in the US and also which uh, will be an issue across the world. Um, and uh, in his uh, understanding, it would appear less, are able, less people are able to work remotely in Malaysia. And if that's the case, how does this vary regionally in Southeast Asia, more broadly speaking, and how much effort has been made to make a digital transition? What is the appetite or culture for going back to the office? <laughs> All right, over to you, Rachel. Okay, uh, thank you for the questions. Um, let me start with uh, Professor Dunleavy's question on um, the Malaysian government. Uh, I, I think broadly speaking, the government has, unless I, I'm very mistaken on this, has preferred um, to work from the office. And even though there is an effort to digitalize some processes, for example, to have um, forms being submitted and um, sent around online, at the end of the day, when it comes to things like, um, you know, stamping legal forms or things like that, that still has to be done in the office. So insofar as official government business has um, been conducted, um, Malaysian government workers, uh, the civil service has functioned by cutting down the number of people who are in office at any one time to facilitate physical distancing, but has still, you know, up to this point, been primarily work from office. Having said that, as part of the digital economic blueprint that I mentioned earlier, uh, Malaysia has made a commitment to try to digitalize the public sector. And that includes, um, you know, upskilling workers and giving them the right um, understanding of how digital processes should be so that they can revamp some of these things and really streamline the process to accept, for example, digital signatures and PDF uh, fillable forms rather than printing out and rescanning and emailing and that sort of thing. But it's slow going at the moment. Uh, one effort that really has been pushed is cashless payments. Um, and there's a strong effort to make um, you know, cashless transactions available for all public service transactions. And that you know, raises inequality questions of its own for people who don't have um, the necessary digital competencies or um, devices that can support that. But there is an effort within the public sector to try and get that going. Um, on to Will's question on uh, working from home and employment inequality. Um, I'm not able to, to estimate or assess what the um, situation is in other um, countries in Southeast Asia, but there have been uh, market research surveys done among um, office workers in five cities in Malaysia. And the result is basically that approximately 50% of them have had some experience, these are office workers in urban areas, about 50% of them have had um, some flexibility in either working from home or taking a hybrid working arrangement over the last couple of years. 
But interestingly enough, the preference of majority of these people, I think about 52%, if I'm not mistaken, or if not 52%, then it's about 50%, is actually to work from the office. Um, and that might, again, be a factor of not having the right devices at home, not having adequate um, an adequate office set up at home, and therefore preferring to work in the office. Another factor that's likely coming to that is that a lot of the offices in Malaysia are likely to be air-conditioned, and that makes a difference in the tropical heat here. So that could be a preference towards working from the office there. Um, I think I've tackled the two big ones there. So I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, before we move to Sabina's response, let me uh, bring uh, Abby um, uh, to respond to this uh, uh, question that is addressed to Abby in, um, regarding the government uh, uh, Filipino uh, workers. So it's a question from Emily who's asking, um, I imagine a large proportion of migrant workers may choose to stay in the country where they work overseas. Um, and I wonder if there's any thinking around how to support these workers um, if and why uh, they choose to remain overseas. Um, and already here, I'm thinking of you know, those um, uh, domestic workers in places like Hong Kong and Singapore, as I listen, uh, read this out, and uh, the most recent uh, news report that I read about which talks about how some of the domestic workers in Hong Kong uh, were uh, uh, who are contracted and who contracted COVID had to stay uh, on the street as rob sleepers because they didn't have any shelters to uh, to go to. Um, anyway, uh, Abby, over to you, and then we we moved on to uh, Sabina next. Yeah, Abby, thank you for the the question, Emily. Um, quickly, um, I'll. The data that we were able to get from government indicates that there are actually a lot of displaced overseas Filipinos who wish to come home, hence the, the repatriation demand. Um, but um, for those uh, who would wish to stay, there are actually um, overseas uh, workers, uh, welfare offices um, who, who can assist them uh, to find alternative employment uh, interim while they are trying to to determine if they will stay for the long for for long or come home but um these are limited um with the capacity manpower resources because the government uh, doesn't really have sufficient support for this small um overseas um welfare offices uh, in destination countries i don't know if i'll I, i'm able to answer that but to um anchor it on yoon's uh, sharing about hong kong domestic workers uh even with the surge um, there are still a lot of workers who opt to stay uh, with, the, with the, the thought that they will get alternative employment. But of course, uh, that's very difficult. And so our, our embassies and these assistance officers are stretched beyond their capacity to provide immediate relief and to even um, provide shelter for the domestic workers. Hence, um, a lot of the challenges are still very much present. Um, I'm sorry if I'm garbled, Thank you so but much. I hope I'm able to answer that. Thank you. Um, well, regarding domestic workers, uh, the book also has a chapter uh, written by Dr. Lo uh, Laura Antona, who has been discussing uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the impact of COVID on domestic workers in Singapore, where she uh, talks about how domestic workers in Singapore have been 
experiencing uh, COVID in 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 a, in a way that uh, is a continuation of what they used to experience in the country, and also on on one hand, and also on the other, a bit of breakaway from what what it used to be. So the continuity aspect will be more or less. Uh, how the inequities continue to prevail, and also uh, to some extent, you know, because domestic workers are largely confined to domestic space um, uh, for most of the time, you know, the whole isolation experience doesn't really necessarily become different during the COVID year, uh, COVID time, from what what it used to be previously. But also a breakaway in terms of how um, uh, the 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 prevailing the, the the level of stress can be even harder because they don't have any um outlet you know especially as they have to, have to continuously face the scrutiny as to some extent surveillance uh exercised by uh their employers and therefore the COVID-19 you know, adding greater stress level and anxiety um without you know, having the having a chance to interact with their peers and also uh, uh, stay away from the employer for any rest and recuperation. So, so please uh, check out uh, the, the chapter by Laurentona about domestic workers. Now, over uh, back to you, Sabina. Uh, so this question about uh, possible measures at regional and global level to address the precarity of government workers, I guess the question can be um, uh, related to many other workers who are in a similar in a precarious situation. So, Sabina, over to you. Um, yes, thanks, John. Um, yeah, it's a really great question um, because one of the things that makes these global precarity chains so precarious um, is simply the fact that the uh, international, multinational brands from places like the UK and Europe and the US um, that are purchasing from uh, countries in, in Southeast Asia uh, and, and elsewhere in the world, they typically have very little direct investment in these countries. So um, the factories that I'm showing you in those images there, the places where people like Lida and Chantu work, they are not owned by the big global brands like Nike or, or Adidas uh, and other global brands are also available. Um, instead, these are um, suppliers that uh, in, in Cambodia are often um, foreign owned um, by um, people from uh, China mostly at the moment. Um, so. The brands themselves have actually very little direct um, investment in these in these factories, and it's one of the things that makes uh, for a very footloose industry. What brands have tended to do over time is what the UK Parliament calls chasing the cheap needle around the planet. And what that basically means is if wages and conditions go up in one place like Cambodia, uh, and that pushes up the cost of production there, brands simply pick up their orders and they take them somewhere else, perhaps Myanmar, where uh, labor happens to be cheaper at that time. And so that's why we've seen the uh, global supply chain, uh, the global precarity chain, let's say, evolve from its initial hubs in places like China to Southeast Asia. And now we're actually seeing the evolution of this uh, precarity chain expand further into kind of what's often called the final frontier of production in places like, um, in places like Africa, especially places like Ethiopia and the Sutu. Um, so obviously one solution to that is um, stop giving brands the incentive to move between countries. So how could a, a, something like ASEAN do that? It's 
through exactly as uh, I think Raxmay's question suggested, through greater cooperation. And we have seen some efforts during COVID-19 at these types of cooperation. Um, so there has been um, the uh, uh, initiation of an Asian suppliers um, network, um, which essentially aims to um, create a standard set of conditions so that buyers cannot look just look to take orders elsewhere if they want to find lower production costs. But what we probably haven't seen from that business side angle is how these um, changes are going to become a roadmap for better working conditions uh, or higher wages for workers. But another long-standing initiative that's existed probably for 10 years in the garment sector is the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, which is a group of trade unions and campaign groups. Um, and their goal is to um, work so that countries within, within Asia um, implement what they call a floor wage. So that's a wage where each worker in each individual country has enough uh, of a minimum standard of income to be able to guarantee basic needs, but the wage is not set so low that uh, or too high that um, it, that brands and, and, and purchases are incentivized to move elsewhere. Um, and I think also what's really relevant um, that maybe just to touch on briefly that links to very uh, interestingly to Abby's uh, contributions here is also that you know garment, garment workers are not just impacted by what's happening in the garment sector. Um, but they've also been in, impacted by wider uh, kind of trends in Southeast Asian economics and politics during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and actually, one of the things that came through very strongly in our research was that a lot of the um, households in which they were garment workers, but also transnational migrants, for example, a lot of Cambodians working in uh, places like Thailand, when the borders closed and their husbands couldn't move between places, that also had a really huge impact on household income. Um, so um, things like border closures as well, obviously, also have their own impact on garment workers' livelihoods in this more indirect, in this more indirect manner. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Um, I think there's a, a question, uh, perhaps uh, that can be directed to uh, Abby again, and in this case, a question from uh, Gerard McCarthy, who is um, from National University of Singapore's Asia Research Institute. Um, who's saying a, a number of speakers touching upon governmental social responses, especially the precarity experienced by those who fell between cracks of COVID-19 or pre-pandemic safety nets. And how, uh, the question is, how is this exclusion inadequacy of governmental social role played out, uh, playing out politically in the context you follow? Are governments and parties showing signs of maintaining their ex extended role beyond COVID? Um, and here I understand uh, Abby uh, is uh, uh, part of the campaign groups um, for one of the presidential candidates in the forthcoming uh, uh, presidential election in the Philippines. So perhaps Abby, you are in, in, in the, probably in the best position to comment on this. And I would also welcome Rachel and Sabina if you would like to also add more thoughts here in this regard. I'm actually um, joking with my co-authors by a chat that um, this might get us into trouble. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my wearing pink is already a form of dissent. So um, just to add, thank you for that question. It's timely. Um, it's important to surface um, that the government really plays a pivotal role. And a lot of the sectors um, affect, severely affected by the pandemic are sadly still taken for granted um, by the current government so um it's important that we're having the elections in may because it would really spell 
the future of the Philippines on whether we will survive <laughs> this economically. We are at, at the moment we are getting deeper into debt. So and for these people to regain back their footing as the rest of the world is starting to adjust to the new normal, we are still apparently very much stuck with um, punitive practices and being um, put in this constant cycle of lockdowns. We slide in and out of lockdowns without proper uh, social safety nets. Um, the poor suffers the most and the government has continued uh, to ignore clamor from the people instead of deploying more health workers, we get more military out on the streets trying to impose people, uh, force people to wear uh, face masks and face shields instead of adding doctors in the hospital. So um, there's a sign, a glimmer of hope, uh, at least in the context of the Philippines, there's a glimmer of hope that we might be able to shift policies into more humane, dignified um, way of handling the impact of the pandemic across different sectors, transport workers, health workers, OFWs. Um, and it is important that we surface issues despite um, attempts of government to silence us. Uh, that's the reason why my co-authors and I bravely, although we We've been doing this, uh, we've been faced with precarity for the past five years, six years under this administration. We continue to write about it, to surface. Um, and thank you for LSE, to LSE for making us part of this panel uh, to encourage people to speak up and come out and say that a lot of things are wrong uh, with how people are being treated uh, in terms of policies and government response. I'm I'm sorry if I took this opportunity to surface that, but uh, we really needed the avenue and the platform, uh, at least uh, for Filipinos uh, here and abroad and those in limbo in quarantine facilities uh, to be heard uh, that we deserve better. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, Rachel, perhaps can I hand over to you? Um, uh either regarding the governmental political responses or also regarding the, the one of the first questions about the regional cooperation about you know, addressing this digital inequality and, 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 and the promotion of more inclusive in a digital policy. Sure, thanks, Jen. Um Maybe I too had better caveat that the opinion I'm about to give here is mine alone and doesn't represent my organization. Um, yeah. With respect, I think, to, to Malaysian politics, um, those who have been following will be aware that very early on in the pandemic, um, we changed governments um, less democratically than one would have liked. Um, and then we changed governments again uh, in August of last year. So there, there's been some instability there and coupled with, as has been mentioned, the sort of lack of, of real um, social protections and support in dealing with the pandemic, um, I, I think is going to play out, well, one hopes is going to play out with some political um, participation in the next six months or so. Certainly next month, there's a state election coming up that I think will give us some insight into what the popular opinion um, in Malaysia is at the moment. Uh, 
Yeah, but I think one of the one of the controversial policies that has been put out in terms of the government trying to offer some sort of you know financial aid during the pandemic is to allow people to withdraw from their um, employee provident funds, their essentially their pension savings, um, and that's not gone over well um, with people who essentially say you know you're basically borrowing from yourself and that's that's bad for you long term. Um, but there are other people saying this is the only way that we can offer um, aid at the time in a time of crisis. Um, so again, I, I think we'll have to see how voters respond to that and whether they're in support of you know the government's decision to do that or not. And thank you very much. Um, I think we are almost reaching the end of our uh, uh, time. Uh, before we finish, uh, Sabina, would you like to have a final say? Um, yeah, sure, absolutely. I think it's another really great question on the, you know, around um, government offerings of social protection during the pandemic. And one of the questions that we get asked a lot with the project is, um, what are the good news stories that came out of it, right? It's, it's been a really difficult time for people, but are there any, uh, you know, silver linings? I hesitate to use that phrase, but but along those lines. And I think that, yeah, in Cambodia, one of the amazing things that happened is very quickly in, in February 2020, when we were experiencing uh, raw material shortages from, from China in the very early wave of the, of the pandemic here, and the government quite quickly rolled out an unemployment um, insurance protection program, um, which is the first of its kind in Cambodia. It had never been it existed in the garment sector before. And what that has demonstrated in Cambodia is that the state does have the capacity to provide social protection programs. Um, so yeah, one of the one of the promising things I think from the pandemic is that there can no longer be this kind of excuse that the state doesn't have the capacity to provide social protection for people. Actually, the rollout's been quite successful. And even if um, the levels of uh, payment protection weren't quite enough to you know, sustain garment workers at the same standard of living they've been used to. The, the, the fact that the state capacity existed and could get money into the hands of people very, very quickly um, is what, certainly one of the positive things that's emerged from the pandemic. Thank you so much. Um, perhaps Doyoung and Murray, would you like to have a final say? Murray? Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, well, I, I suppose the, the the final thing to say is just thank you to all of you for for being here. For um, and it's been so nice to see you uh, all again after quite a while. Um, the thing that strikes me when we um, when listening to you and and returning to this is how 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 clearly these questions have retained their urgency. And I think for us as editors, so much of our concern was what makes a book like this sustainable, um, but it just has not proven to be an issue. Um, and, and certainly it was never about the pandemic then, nor is it now. It, it, it becomes actually a, a method of sorts for just revisiting questions in new ways. Um, it's been striking the way that uh, these sorts of events have changed, but I think this, this process has also made us think about the way that academic publication will, will change as well. So, um, Thank you to the those from the LSE Press who were on the call. Um, uh, it was, it's been a pleasure to work with you, um, and it, it's it's made me think a lot about what a book like this can achieve and what it ought to achieve, and how it brings together people and retains a certain charge. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, uh, Toyong. 
Yeah, I think time is running out, and I already have said, you know, my, my thanks to everyone. Uh, so I will just hand, hand it over to Jan. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, well, many thanks to everyone uh, uh, for taking part today, the speakers and also the members of our audience. And also, let me also thank our um, uh, LSE public events team and CX staff for the support provided, and also in particular, LSE press team led by Professor Patrick Dunleavy as editor-in-chief for the support provided in, a, uh, in the course of uh, preparing this publication. You can order the book, by the way, uh, um, uh, by visiting the, the LSE Press website. Uh, but also, uh, more importantly, uh, and, and to my delight, the book is available as open access, so you can uh, freely download the entire copy free of charge from the LSE Press website. And as a way of concluding, I would like to draw your kind attention to the final chapter in the book entitled In Pandemic Academia, Scholarly Practices and on Ethics of Care. Uh, the chapter is a reflection on academic practices, practices in general and what it means to pursue them during the crisis. And it is this ethics of care that we would like to emphasize as key to thinking about positive social change and keeping our eyes on negative social change from overtaking our lives. So thank you everyone for taking part today again. We hope to see you again soon at the future SIAC and LSE public event. And please keep well and stay safe. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.